all time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Does that phrase, so important to the author, do anything for you? And it is important to the author. You may or may not remember what he said after introducing Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek way back in chapter 5. He says, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing and so he paused in explaining about Melchizedek until he'd stirred them out of their dullness by warning and encouragement because he wants them to pay attention to it. Oh, and it's an idea whose importance he explains actually in a sustained way from verse 1 of chapter 7 all the way through to 10.18. That is the longest piece of explanation of the greatness of Jesus in the whole book. This is the big idea in Hebrews. Jesus, our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's the one the author really wants you to get. But it's not readily understandable for most of us. Oh yes, some of us are probably used to the language of priest and priesthood. For example, you might come from a Catholic or a Hindu background and you grew up with priests and so you have already a sense of the important role of a priest in your relationship with God. You know a priest is someone who stands between you and God, who mediates your relationship with God. So you're already along the road to understanding. But others of us, for example, may have grown up in Protestant families reading our Bibles. And so, you know, we've got a familiarity with the language, but priests have not been part of our experience. And so the language of priesthood has no deep resonance with us and can all seem a bit abstract. And still others of us didn't have any kind of religious background at all. And this kind of language just puzzles us and leaves us feeling a little excluded, wondering why on earth you'd even put in the bother. You know, you'd even bother to put in the effort to get your head around it when there seemed to be clearer ways of talking about Jesus. Oh, and if we're not believers yet, this language probably just reinforces the foreignness of the whole Christian thing. Now, that reaction, you know, being a bit frustrated with words and concepts that are not transparent, it's understandable. But I hope we'll all see as we go through chapter 7 that while the language and ideas of priesthood are unfamiliar, foreign to many of us, the needs that a priest addresses are fundamentally human. Their core concerns, your needs, the need to be able to approach the living God the need to be at peace with God, the need for a hope that goes beyond death. All of us, whatever our background, if we're going to be convinced like the author of the great good of Jesus being our high priest, we'll need to remember something the first readers were very aware of, but we are almost unconscious of, and that is the holiness and the greatness of the God of Israel the true and living God, the creator. It's easy for us to forget that because there are all sorts of misrepresentations of God floating around in our culture, misrepresentations that can dull our engagement with the reality of God, make us indifferent 
to relating to him. You know those kind of misrepresentations? There's the non-existent God of the scoffers on the airwaves. You know the God if he's there. There's the indifferent, absent God, the God of logical necessity, an empty idea with no real engagement with people. The indulgent God, without standards, who's happy as long as you're happy? Oh, the God who's my mate, and for mateship's sake, will put up with our little foibles and failings and is only amazingly cross about the things that make you cross. Now, where you believe those lies about God, where you let them shape your sense of God, even if unconsciously, then talk of Jesus as our high priest will at the best be only ever academic, never a cause of heartfelt joy and gratitude. And none of those lies come anywhere near the reality of the creator God, the reality that God's actually made known to his people, the Jews, over thousands of years of his dealings with them, the reality that the Lord is the holy king of all the earth. Listen to the experience of God, of just one of God's people, the experience of Isaiah when God reveals himself to him. He writes there in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two seraphim, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His is an overwhelming experience, and it brings home to us three truths about the Lord, the true God. Firstly, he is the King. Sitting on his throne, he's a real king, an absolute ruler whose word is law. He's not some powerless figurehead. He rules all human affairs. Just one example of what God says of his rule. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Prosperity or want, peace or woe, life or death, depend on the living God. And secondly, he is the holy king, superlatively holy, 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 holy. That means that he is distinct and separate from us, separate from our frailty and death, separate from all our sin, that is, all our rebellion against his rule and separate from the uncleanness that flows from it. The Lord can be approached only on his terms as the Holy God, not ours, for no one can make God act against his character and will. 
and for the sinful, the unclean, to come into his presence is death. Which means, thirdly, unless our sin is atoned for, we are doomed. Did you hear Isaiah's reaction to this vision of the Holy God? Woe is me, for I am lost. And that would be true for each of us when we meet the Holy God. He sees all things, all our ways are in his sight. And he calls all deeds, everything, every hidden thing to account. And he cannot not act to give what our rebellion against his good rule deserves. For he is just and holy. Now this is the truth of the creator God. He is the active ruler of all the world, not some passive, disengaged idea. And he is the righteous judge whose presence sinners cannot come into unless their sin's been atoned for. He's not indifferent or tolerant to our rebellion. The history of the Jews, the people to whom the letter of Hebrews is mainly addressed, was a history of deliverance and judgment, of a, a God who made promises and kept them, gave warnings and fulfilled them in judgment, confirms that he is the active holy king. Their architecture, the architecture of their worship, the structure of the tabernacle and temple with its holy place and then its most holy place from which the people were excluded, into which only the priests could go after making sacrifice, constantly reinforced the reality of God's holiness. If you're a believer in Jesus, you know that already, don't you? For the cross of Jesus has taught you that God is the holy judge, a judge who takes our sin seriously, so seriously that only the death of his son can atone for it. Oh, and he is the almighty ruler who works, as we see in the cross, even the will of those who oppose him to serve his purpose. This holy God rules. Our lives are in his hand and he will call all to account. So how can we live with such a holy God and not die? How can we approach the holy God who rules all things and have our concerns and requests, our pleas for help, heard by him? Now the Old Testament's answer was that all that's the work of the priest. It was the priest who had to stand between God and the people. The priest who was to bring the people's concerns to God. The priest, particularly the high priest, who was to offer the sacrifices that allowed God to keep dwelling amongst his people. Yet all that, in a sense, was a sign and a shadow. And the history of the people of Israel had been one of repeated judgment, of losing, not enjoying what God had promised, even while their priests were ministering. It's into this reality, into this consciousness, that our author introduces another priest. Jesus, a high priest, forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And we'll start in chapter 7, a long comparison between Jesus and the priests of the Jewish religion, the sons of Levi, to show how much better Jesus is. For the first hearers, this language of priesthood taps actually into the heart of their relationship to God. Having a priest was about whether anyone's able to live with the living God as his people. It's about whether we can know peace with him, know blessing and life from him in the place of death and judgment. Core concerns. But the author's very specific about what kind of priest Jesus is. He's already spoken in chapter 2 of how Jesus is qualified to be high priest because of his sinless humanity. Since chapter 5, He's spoken of Jesus as the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 20 of chapter 6, he introduces another word, forever. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important, that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Well, as this is an idea as new to the first readers as to us, our, priest, our author starts chapter 7 by, well, reminding us about Melchizedek and explaining his significance. He turns to the first of the two places in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned, chapter 14, which you heard read, where Melchizedek meets Abraham when he's returning from defeating the kings who had taken his nephew Lot captive. And in this summary in verses 1 to 3, he highlights several things about the portrayal of Melchizedek in Genesis. He says he's a king, a royal figure, whose reign is characterised by righteousness and peace, like Jesus, who's the royal son. Oh, and he's a priest, the first priest mentioned in the Bible long before the sons of Levi became priests. He received the tithe, the tenth part, from Abraham and he blessed him, the significance of which he's going to enlarge upon in verses 4 following. And in verse 3 he highlights a feature of Melchizedek's portrayal in Genesis. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this is not saying that the man Melchizedek was eternal. The author is actually saying that the portrayal of Melchizedek has been made to be like, made to resemble the reality of Jesus. He's saying that God arranged the encounter with Abraham, that God arranged the record of this encounter in Genesis so that we could learn from it about the reality of Jesus priesthood, so that we'd be aware of the distinguishing feature of this first and greatest order of priests, that it is forever, a priesthood forever. And he does want to highlight the greatness of this first priest. Now, because, you know, we probably don't think about Abraham a lot, we're not descended from Abraham as the Jews are, this emphasis of the greatness of Melchizedek, you know, probably seems a bit here or there, neither here nor there to us, but it's actually important. You see, the author brings out the significance in verses 4 to 10 of Abraham giving Melchizedek a tenth 
and then Melchizedek blessing Abraham. Both those things show that Melchizedek is greater than the greatest man in the Jewish faith, Abraham their ancestor, who was called a friend of God. You see verse 7, beyond dispute that in relation to men where blessings are powerful as opposed to praises, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek is demonstrably greater than Abraham in blessing him and receiving a tenth from him and demonstrably greater than all his descendants. You see, in being demonstrably greater than Abraham, Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than Levi, from the descendant of Abraham, from whom all the Old Testament priests are descended. For the author says you can think of it as Levi being included in his ancestors' acknowledgement of the greatness of Melchizedek. And he wants to bring that out. He wants to show the greatness of Melchizedek and his priesthood because he's now turning to Psalm 110, verse 4. This prophecy of Melchizedek, this prophecy that one day there will be a king whom God also declares to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus. And he wants them to see how much greater Jesus and his priesthood are so that his hearers will never think of going back to rely on the old covenant, the old law, the old priesthood. If perfection, he said, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. See, the first thing he says in verse 11 is that the very existence of that prophecy in Psalm 110 shows that the priesthood of Levi, the priesthood established at Mount Sinai as part of the covenant God made with Israel after they'd been rescued from Egypt, was never going to be able to realise God's purpose for his people and his creation. Now, if perfection had been attainable, Perfection is actually a key idea in this part of Hebrews, recurring at verse 19 and again in chapters 9 and 10. Our author, as we know, has already talked about Jesus being made perfect, fit for the role of priest, but this is the first time he's applied the idea of perfection to believers. And here it has the sense of completeness, of fullness. The perfection the priesthood of the old covenant could not bring is the fulfilment of God's promises, the completion of his plan for his people and his creation. The promise of another greater priesthood, he says, tells us the Levitical priest is actually unable to bring about the time God has promised when his people would dwell with him, at peace with him forever, and know the blessing of being in his presence, a place without pain or death or grief. And our author says we see the priesthood to be unable in two ways, this priesthood from Levi. Firstly, it can't by its sacrifices make people good, change their heart. 
So they'll always be exposed to God's judgment. Oh, and secondly, as he'll show in chapter 10, while the sacrifices they make can cleanse the outside, those sacrifices can't really atone for sin. They can't make perfect those who would draw near to God. And the reason that this priesthood from Levi is unable is because, he says, it's inextricably intertwined with the law, with the Sinai covenant, the whole package of the law. Now, often when we think about the law, we divide it into civil, ceremonial and moral to help us kind of understand how we should apply it. But that wasn't the practice of the first century Jews. For them, the Sinai covenant, the law, was all or nothing. So by law, he's speaking of all that's commanded at Sinai, the bulk of which concerns the priesthood. That law, he says, the Sinai covenant can, verse 18, make nothing perfect. That is, it can never bring people to the fulfilment of God's plans for his people. The institution and practice of the priesthood of Levi is inseparable, he says, from the law, the whole covenant. In fact, that relationship is so close. Did you see that in verse 11? For under it the priesthood, he said, the people received the law. The expression of the law in the life of the people, its practice, he says, is actually dependent on the priesthood. Law and priesthood of Levi are inseparable. And so not only does the priesthood share all the weaknesses of that covenant, but where the priesthood, verse 12, changes, there must necessarily be a change of law, a change of covenant, a change in the way we relate to God. That's the first, that's a big problem with the priesthood from Levi, can make nothing perfect. Oh, as you heard, our author mentioned some other problems with this priesthood instituted by the law. The priests are mortal. It's a hereditary priesthood because they die. <laughs> so individually their work is limited and collectively this death marks the priesthood as belonging to this age, unable to bring or belong to the coming age. Oh, and verse 27, he reminds us these priests are sinful, needing to make atonement for their own sins and subject themselves to judgment. Now, the author is going to contrast this unable, mortal, sinful priesthood with the priesthood of Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, to show how much better Jesus' priesthood is and when it says after the order of Melchizedek, oh, it doesn't mean he's descended from him. No, it means that his feature, his priesthood, shares the features of Melchizedek's priesthood. And so the first one of them that he wants to emphasise is that Jesus doesn't come into his priesthood by law. He's not dependent on the old covenant with all its weaknesses for his priesthood. In fact, the author says, Jesus would be excluded by the old covenant from being a priest, which is again why there must be a change of covenant if Jesus is priest. No, Jesus is qualified for his priesthood, verse 16, not by descent, 
but by his indestructible life, by the power of an indestructible life. You are a priest forever. Oh, and not being tied to the law means that relating to God through this priest will introduce for us a better hope. Verse 9, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, the hope he's speaking of here is actually the hope of perfection, the hope of the fulfilment of God's plans to bring a new heaven and earth, a reign of righteousness and peace. Now, that hope was set out in the Old Testament, but Jesus makes it a better hope, brings a better hope, because he makes that time certain. Jesus is already now established through his death and resurrection as the king of that kingdom. That kingdom's coming is certain. And Jesus makes the participation of his people in it sure. Jesus, as our priest, really does, you see, deal with our sin and so makes it possible for us to draw near to God, to live with him. Oh, and not being dependent on the law, the Sinai covenant, Jesus, we are told, brings a better covenant. A, a, a covenant's a, a formal agreement between two parties, a formal and solemn commitment. And we're going to think more about the nature of the covenant Jesus brings in the next chapter, chapter 8. But for now, our author wants to emphasise its certainty by bringing out another difference between Jesus' priesthood and that of Levi. Jesus' priesthood, he says, is established by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. See, Jesus' people won't be relating to God on the basis of the Sinai law. They'll actually be relating to God on the basis of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31 where God promises to forgive our sins and remember them no more. And God has guaranteed that by making it certain by his oath that Jesus' priesthood will be forever. You are a priest forever. It'll never be changed or replaced. And so, of course, the covenant that Jesus brings with his priesthood will never be changed or replaced. As we saw in chapter 6, God's oath is God assuring the recipients of the promise, that is us, of the certainty of the promise by telling us that he has committed his whole being, what it is for him to be God, to keeping his word. Only when the Lord fails to be God will he fail to keep his promise. And he is God. He can never fail to be God. And so Jesus will never cease to be a priest. And so the covenant he brings in with his priesthood will never cease. So there will always be forgiveness for those for whom Jesus is priest, who rely on his priestly work, that is the basis, the enduring basis, the forever basis of our relating to God. We are forgiven and our sins remembered no more. And our author emphasises that 
by another contrast with the Levitical priests, the former priests of the Old Covenant. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And if by this stage you're overwhelmed by information, take verse 25 away with you. That's the one you've got to take home and think about. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' qualification for his priesthood is his indestructible life Jesus will always continue off in his office, never be replaced or succeeded, and that has a wonderful consequence. He saves to the uttermost, completely, those who rely on him to bring them to the living God. Now, save here is being saved from the judgment our rebellion against God deserves. It's being saved from the sin that causes us to cry out like Isaiah, woe is me, when we meet the holy God, when we are convinced of the reality of judgment. It's being saved from the condemnation of the law. Jesus saves to the uttermost completely. The salvation Jesus brings is not partial. It's not something that someone ourselves need to supplement by anything we do. It's not he saves us 90% and we've got to add the extra 10%. He does all that is needed to rescue us. He makes us completely secure. <coughs> That's the footnote in our Bibles and that indecipherable blue is Hebrews 7.25. It's a footnote uh, in our Bibles points out the same word can also have the sense of at all times. And so this verse is also saying that Jesus saves at all times. He can save anyone at any time and he saves those he saves for all time, forever. And those two senses are complementary, aren't they? You can't be saved forever unless you're saved completely. And you can't be saved completely unless you are saved forever. Jesus saves those who depend on him to bring them to God completely and forever. And he can do that because he always lives, it says, to make intercession for his people. Like the high priest who always bore in his vestments Israel on his heart when he stood before God, it is Jesus' presence in the presence of God that intercedes for us that always seeks and finds our pardon. He is always in God's presence and his intercession is always effective. God never needs to be reminded of Jesus' work. It's always before him in the presence of his son, his crucified son, and it is always being applied to his people, those who trust Jesus to bring them to God. Now think for a moment. What is it for you and I to be saved to the uttermost? What is it to rely on Jesus and what he has done as our priest to bring us to God? Well, to be saved to the uttermost is life, isn't it? As it were, it's to be touched by the coal from the altar. 
that allows us to live in the presence of the Holy God, to hear him, to relate to him, to know him as our God. It's life. And to be saved to the uttermost is confidence. Confidence to approach this holy, almighty God and seek his help and to know we will be heard and know his favour because we are his people. Oh, and to be saved to the uttermost is sure hope of coming to what God has promised, sure hope of coming in the language of Scripture to the new Jerusalem, whose city and builder is the, the city whose builder and maker is God, where the river of life flows and we are whole and we know peace and there is no death anymore. To be saved to the uttermost by Jesus is to know now that even when you feel yourself covered by shame because of your pride or your lust or your small love for your Saviour, you will never be driven away from God, never have to flee from him, never be excluded from turning to him for the grace and mercy we so much need. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, do you live as if you have such a priest? Because he is the priest we need and the only priest we need. For it was indeed fitting, he says, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Or the NIV and the CSB basically say, such a high priest truly meets our need. To come to the true God, the holy, just, almighty ruler of the earth. We all need a priest. And Jesus is the priest we all need and the only priest we need, the only one who can do the job. You see, he is qualified as no other is. He's qualified by his character, holy, innocent, unstained. That can be said of no one else. Not sharing in our sin, able to come into the presence of God. He's qualified by his location. He is exalted above the heavens. He is in the presence of God. He's qualified by his work that the author speaks about in verse 27. That one sacrifice of himself which he alone can offer and on which our author will expand in chapter 9. No one else is qualified as he is. And our author brings that home in his summary in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There are the Levitical priests. They've been instituted by God in his law. They're not self-appointed. But they could never save. They could never bring perfection because they are beset by weakness, sinful, mortal, their work, work of this age. But the oath, we are told, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, who has been equipped by God to be the only priest we need forever. And he's, in a sense, taking us back to think about the bigger picture of Jesus. Jesus is the Son. He is qualified by his person. He's the exalted Lord, 
ruling eternally, the one who took on our flesh and blood to defeat our accuser, the Son. He's qualified by his suffering through which he learnt obedience. He's qualified by his death, his sacrifice that only he can make. He is qualified by his resurrection, his indestructible life that only he has. And so he alone is always fit, eternally right for the job of saving his people eternally right to be the source of our life and confidence and the guarantor of our hope, right at the beginning of your life, right at the middle of your life, right at the end of your life, right forever. Well, it's plain, isn't it, that helping us, helping his first hearers understand Jesus' high priesthood is an important part of the authors encouraging those first hearers to persevere in putting their faith in Jesus, whatever their trials, and to never go back to Judaism. He's actually saying to them, how could you think of going back to what could never deliver, that indicated its weakness in its very regulations for the priesthood, whether that was the replacement by descent of those who died or the repetition of sacrifice or the provision of sacrifice for their own sins? How could you think of going back to that? Going back would leave you in your sin, in your rebellion, and distant, cut off from the holy God, never able to come to what God has planned and promised for his people and for his creation. And once we know that Jesus is the one who alone is equipped to save us for all time, who by his person and work can always bring us into the presence of the holy God, so that we can be confident of his mercy and help now of sharing in the new creation, knowing eternal life and peace, once we know Jesus is our high priest forever, how could we think of going back to lies about God, finding refuge from the pressure of the world that hates the holy God in something that has no hope, that will just leave you on the last day without help, trembling before the Holy God. And how could you think that you would need another priest, that you need someone other than the Son to mediate your relationship to God? See, believers in Jesus have a priest who lives forever, who is always in the presence of God, always interceding for us. He doesn't need a substitute or a supplement or an earthly representative. There can never be another. To rely on Jesus is to rely on another as your mediator. To suggest, as Roman Catholicism does, that Christian ministers are priests who make sacrifices. That is to detract from the work of Jesus and his glory. And it's to rob you of your great privilege of being able to draw near to God yourself with confidence because Jesus, your Saviour, brings you into the presence of the Holy God. Oh, and, and, and how could you think, once you know Jesus has saved you completely, that you need to add to something, to, you need to add something you do to what he has done when he calls you to trust him. Well, Hebrews 7 is just the start of a long exposition of Jesus as high priest. As I've said in chapter 8, will be told of the better covenant he brings in chapter 9 of the sacrifice he makes once and for all. But here, 
Jesus, if you're a believer, is your high priest, the one who is able to save to the uttermost, the one who is able to save you completely and for all time because he always lives to make intercession for you in the presence of God. Honour Jesus as your high priest. Confess him as your priest forever who alone brings perfection and that you need no other. Draw near to God through him always in your grief and your doubt and your consciousness of sin when you are thinking God could never accept you. Show that you trust that he has saved you completely and for all time by drawing near to God for mercy and help through him. Oh yes, and honour him by living in persevering, humble confidence. Knowing that because of Jesus and what he's done, not because of what you have done, your hope is sure. So that you know that whatever it costs you in this life to keep following Jesus, Whatever others may think of you for confessing Jesus, you will live true to him every day with thankfulness and joy because he, your high priest, in the presence of God, intercedes for you and has saved you completely and for all time. Let's pray.